Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Melissa Hunter-Davis, the founder of Sugarcane Magazine, and this is This Week in Caribbean Art and Culture. And I'm here with the lovely... Marianne Ortiz, <laughs> curator and uh, writer. And, uh, work, I work at the Barcelona Museum in Miami. Hi, everybody. Suzanne Fredericks, gallerist, advisor, consultant, and um, advocate for the arts of the Caribbean. All right, ladies. So how was your weekend? My weekend was good. Um, in the la- not on the weekend, but this week, I actually went to um, Spinola Projects here in Miami, and I saw a. I saw in the back, you know, galleries always have like the little back room where you can see stuff that is not on on display right now, but it's also really cool. I mean, they have a, a show by Mateo Nava that ends today. He's an artist from uh, Mexico, but the, he's also showing an, an artist from a Cuban American artist named Emma Ree. And his works are quite uh, elegant and really speak a lot about Miami because he kind of takes the drywalls to create the, the skins that he calls them and generate this very kind of elegant, almost art deco types of uh, paintings, right? Or two, two-dimensional works. And that was nice to see. And he's a young artist. So I think that probably really accessible to get into. But that was probably my art highlight. Excellent. Susie, how was your weekend? Oh, it was, it was great. I went to see, uh, for the second time, actually, I went to the opening of a show a while back, um, maybe three weeks ago now. But I went back because, you know, it's always nice to go and it's quiet. Um, it's a textile exhibition here in Kingston, Fiber Active Germination. Um, and it's curated by Black Mango Consultants, uh, a, a textile artist, actually, who is... Katrina Coombs, and she's worked with the Diaspora Vibes um, incubator in Miami. Uh, so she's had, you know, ex- experience like beyond our shores. And she's really working very hard and doing some interesting things. And she's brought together a group of textile artists, kind of intergenerational. And the work is just so beautiful. I have a like real weakness for textile works anyway. Um, and it was just so beautiful to see. And Karina Chang Fat is a textile artist who's now resident in Miami, but um, she was born and raised here and has worked here for a long time. There, there was a kind of pause to her practice, just life and everything. And it was just so wonderful to see new work from her. It's very kind of fragile and tender and beautiful. Um, so I saw that and that was life-giving, as we say here in Jamaica. Um, I also received a book in the post, which I have to say... I have to mention because it's just so beautifully illustrated. You know, when you when you buy, when you see catalogs, you know, catalogs have a certain standard and it's all around the work and the essays clearly. Um, here we have a book of the same with the same priorities, and that is Beyond the Door of No Return by Celine Went, who's a Norwegian curator, writer, um, and has included the Caribbean in numerous shows. She had um, Echoes of the South Atlantic, which was a kind of a really interesting digit, multimedia digital kind of show. The publication that was made for it was really interesting. Anyway, the book is beautiful and she focuses on, it, it talks really about the Nordic country's history in the Caribbean and, and the other diasporas where, and in Africa as well, clearly, um, an artist working in those histories and she uses Stuart Hall and Edward Gleason as kind of frameworks around which to discuss their work 
and a new way of seeing the role of Nordic countries in the history of the region. Um, so I'm about, I'm into chapter three, <laughs> but it was quite gripping. It was really, so it was, it, was a, it was an interesting weekend and quite full in terms of stimulation. So it was great. Not much happens in Kingston on a regular basis, you know. <laughs> The book is on the, the proof right there. So this weekend I went to, uh, well, I didn't go this weekend. I think it was Thursday was the opening, Wednesday or Thursday. I went to go see um, the Betty Starr show at ICA Miami. It was, I think that's my first large opening that I've been to in two years where there was a lot of people. And, you know, at first when I walked in, I really thought it was a time to, um, maybe a time exhibit because everyone was outside having, you know, cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. So I just thought, you know, oh, so I'm just waiting for people to bring you in. But it's funny because one of the curators uh, brought me in with a, a small group of women. And it seems like everyone <laughs> who was outside just came trailing behind us. And so it went from being like four people to like 25. And then it just, it got really big and loud because there was a lot of people. And I think everyone was happy to be there. You know, you're not always so blessed to see a large amount of Betty Sars work in one spot. Um, mm -hmm. so there was a lot of people, but it, it was a really great show. Um, I think I mentioned before in our, our group chat, there was um, an interactive altar that I really, really liked. Um, that was really fantastic. I brought my youngest child with me. She got a chance to kind of join in and I got a chance to have some conversations with her that I'd never had with her before. Um, I was able to kind of pull her to the side and, you know, talk to her about what the middle passage is. Um, and she'd never really, her, I'd never really talked to her about that. The thing she heard about slavery, but didn't really know. And on some of her pieces, she actually has, you know, what would be the layout of the, the belly of the ship and the way slaves were transported. So I also got this book that I'm gonna post for those of you who follow us on Instagram, you'll be able to take a peek. Um, this book called A Saint in the City, this has nothing to do with Caribbean art, but um, Sufi Arts of Urban Senegal. If you know me well, you know that I love Dakar. And um, this book, I don't even think is in print. I'm assuming that this is probably used because as soon as I took out the package, it fell apart. And I was fine with that, <laughs> you know, long as the pages were held together. Um, but it's, it's all about Sufi art and some of the street art that you'll find in Senegal and some of the background behind it. At the time, I don't know if it's gonna fall at the same time this year, but this year Descartes is May 19th is when it opens, I believe. And typically every year, I think right around that same time, there is a, Somewhere within that vicinity is a religious festival where they celebrate um, some important people um, that are important to, to the country of Senegal and not just their spirituality, but also some of their, the, the fighting that they did for freedom for the country. And typically it happens around the same time. I'm not sure if it's gonna happen like that this year because they changed the date, but hopefully I'll actually get a chance to, to participate this year in some of their, their big festivals. So I was, I was happy to have this and looking forward to reading some more of it. So I'll post a picture on Instagram. It is a hard book to find. I saw someone else on Instagram with the book. I put in my email at like a bookstore, something called Thrift Books. They only have one copy. I immediately bought it 
but I guess every once in a while this pops up, um, pops up on the used book circuit and people are able to purchase it. So that was my weekend besides, you know, being a mommy and wife and all of that <laughs> fun stuff. So that's what we did. So we have an interesting show today. Let's go ahead and get started. So um, for all of us who have been locked in the house for two years, we've missed out on a bevy of, of art fairs and festivals and ex exhibitions and just a generally general good time that we're used to having when we are, you know, going around and traveling around the world looking at work by artists and the stories told by curators. And one of the fairs that we've looked forward to for a long time is of course, Prospect Five in New Orleans. I was supposed to go, could not go, but I will be there in January for that. Yes. Yeah, that's it. I will not miss that for the world. Good, good, good. I'm trying to lose weight. <laughs> look, keep look. We have our goals, we have our goals. Lose weight after New Orleans. You oh know. yeah, no. I mean, so what you, you gotta do, go before so you gain it all back in two days, and then yeah, because yeah, I <laughs> definitely oyster poor boy is waiting for me as soon as I get there. I can tell you that right now. So, um, but I'm definitely looking forward to being at, at Prospect Five, and we are lucky to have one of the curators. I would pause for a second. I was so happy when the curators were announced for Prospect Five, and they were actually two women, and I was just like, yes. yeah, a first, a first, yeah. So we have a fantastic curator here with us, Diana Nawi. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you guys so much for taking time to talk to me about the show. Absolutely. So tell us about this iteration, Prospect 5. What can we expect? Yeah. So um, Prospect 5, the fifth iteration of Prospect, which was a triennial now for the pandemic. We're cruising into our um, fourth year, as it were. Um, but it, uh, you know, Prospect started in 2008 kind of uh in the wake of hurricane katrina is this kind of idea about what could art do and i think it was really earnest and optimistic in this idea that both around like the tangibles like around economy and rebuilding and and also around i think some of the more like ephemeral kind of like ideas that like art could have an ameliorative effect on like a community that like had been essentially like brought to its knees and was you know, not um, getting the resources it needed after this kind of, uh, you know, natural disaster, but certainly man-made in a lot of ways. Um, so I think that's, you know, what Prospect comes out of. And now this kind of fifth iteration is, you know, more than 10 years later. So it's a little bit, the organization has evolved. I think there's a slightly more formal quality to the work that we're doing. And, and Prospect doesn't have a particular mandate. It's dealer's choice, but we you know, increasingly you're seeing a turn to the global south. And I think for us, for Naima and I, we very much wanted to kind of think about, um, you know, New Orleans role within the south, within the diaspora, and within the Caribbean, I think really were the kind of touch points uh, for the exhibition. So you kind of see that reflected in the artist list and, you know, in projects and kind of thematics within the show. And it's 51 artists um, in about 17 venues we're opening over wow. the course of a month. So we are three weeks into four weeks of openings as of this coming Saturday. Um, and we're in formal venues like the Historic New Orleans Collection in the French Quarter. We're 
at CAC and the Ogden uh, downtown. We're at the New Orleans African American Museum, which is also our hub, the main visitor welcome center in the Treme. And then we're in like a 1920s theater that's never really been redone. We're in an abandoned storefront. We are in a couple of public parks. We are at universities. We are in all kinds of places and spaces. So very much that's what kind of prospect has, you know, quite unique about it is that it lays over the city. And I think for us, you know, New Orleans is, you know, almost like a sacred city within the imagination. And I think in, in, in reality, like it's such a challenge doing justice to a city where culture is so important and to kind of allow visual art to take a key role in a city that where music and dance and food and all other modes of cultural expression are like so predominant and in every moment of the day. So I think for us, the idea was not to compete with New Orleans, but rather to like, you know, we talk about New Orleans as like the main protagonist of the show. And this is an exhibition that sort of highlights parts of the city and, and different things that are happening here in different ways the city might resonate with our kind of current moment. And I really appreciate the fact that you work with all of these organizations and spaces within the city that no one feels left out that, you know, you know, as a viewer, I know that I will go to all areas of the city um, and people who live there have a chance to interact with work that they maybe would not have had a chance to interact before. Because oftentimes when we look at, you know, black and brown communities, we don't get those opportunities. People assume that no one wants to go there, no one wants to be there, you know, Nobody would dare put world-class art in this neighborhood. And yet here it is, you know, for all of us to be a part of and to see. So we not only get a chance to interact with the art, but we get a, a chance to interact with the, the neighborhoods as well. And I've always appreciated that. Yeah, I think it's been, you know, I think, um, you know, the initial iteration of Prospect, I think what was so powerful was that like New Orleans, like so many cities is super segregated and just there's all these lines and delineations and places you know, so people don't go or people don't cross over. And I think um, P1 really did a good job and like really thought about that, like in a very, in a very conscientious way. And then I think increasingly prospects started to shrink back down into like an art event and started to like shrink into like known art um, sites. And I think we have tried to expand back out, you know, and I, I think we were successful in some ways and not in other ways. And I think like working with Noam in the Treme and having that be the, the place where people come, I think is like a very important marker to say like, this is a black city. This is who built the city. This is who runs the city. This is why the city is important. And so I think there's a statement there. And then I think in terms of thinking about different parts of the city, like EJ Hill will do a project in New Orleans East and Kevin Beasley is working on something kind of low key in the lower ninth ward, but also has an exhibition at CAC. So it's also about like creating connections across. And I'm hopeful that like future iterations will just continue to do better at like reorienting some of the maps that we know around New Orleans in terms of, you know, that tourist map is like well-worn, like there are these, that's it. And so to, to get outside of that, like the surface is thick here. So to get outside of the surface and to have an experience where you're going kind of off of those five places that they just want you to go, I think is, has been like a challenge and been really important for us. I think that resonates a lot with like, um, just the Caribbean experience, like when you like as a tourist site, right? Cause I think that that's also what you're describing that this, you know, the city is so designed for tourist consumption. Like how do you then try to 
show its multi like many faces right now there's a couple of caribbean artists on the show right there's natalie pierre there's cosmo yeah cosmo natalie pierre i mean jamila Savor, neri ward uh tau lewis um somebody else yeah it's it's a pretty substantial i mean I, I think just proportionally it was substantial and at some point i was like okay i think there's too many jamaican like i like at this long <laughs> list i was like okay we can't have every like you know I, you know i spent as you know marilena like a, a lot of time there and like you know you kind of like it feels like a great showcase and a great conversation for i mean that it's a very short line between you know the caribbean and northern you know often the northernmost caribbean city but I think it's really real. And I think like, um, you know, I think about our work together in Miami a lot because I think Miami and spending a little bit of time in Kingston like oriented me towards a certain perspective on New Orleans. And I think that tourist performance is is really real. Like this kind of idea, like what is the city for itself and what is the city like uh, choose and force to perform for, you know, economy mm -hmm. and, and what aspect of that performance is actually real. You know, and I think that's very confusing for folks. Like, I think in New Orleans, there's like a, a lot of slippage. Um, and so that has been like super interesting to think about. And I think the pandemic, I mean, for a lot of places, like we talked to these curators in Hawaii who said similarly, like having the city shut down to outsiders more or less, like was this moment of like, what would we be if we were for ourselves, right? And it like devastated the economy, but it like, there was a moment when it was like, maybe we could like rethink this, you know, and of course, as soon as it was like remotely possible, the government, like everyone just opened tourism back up because there's just so much money at stake. But I think it was an interesting experiment to see that. And yeah, in terms of the Caribbean, I think that influence is, is just super real. And so, so many artists, I feel like, you know, many of whom are like in the diaspora or second generation or something, but I think there's like a connection to, to certain practices. So you know, like I think Tao Lewis, for instance, is a young artist. I think she's first generation Canadian. Uh, her family's from Jamaica. But I think, you know, that when I look at the work, she's definitely channeling and thinking about art histories of the Caribbean and thinking about art histories of the diaspora and folk art and different ways of making, I think. And, you know, someone like Cosmo in particular, I think like he, he very early was kind of talked about this relationship between masquerade and carnival and Mardi Gras and all of these kinds of um, ways of occupying public space that he saw residences in. And even like Jason Fitzroy Jeffers, who's, you know, Trinidadian uh, via Miami or vice versa is, you know, um, remarked like it, it's, it's like New Orleans really, you feel that feeling. And like, I, I remember like being on a street corner in the Bahamas and like looking up at this building and you just have this like moment of like, oh, where am I? Because you see that it's like one-to-one -one, that architecture, that space and some of the way, you know, there's just like these cultural resonances. And so having artists draw that line and think through that, I think has been super interesting. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about the programming because, um, you know, the, the kind of uh, universality of this, you know, trying to penetrate the real truth of a place in all its complexity is something that is, is such a strong resonance. And I think I've seen some of the programming for um, the Neighborhood Story Project for Prospect, who I think are a fascinating 
kind of group. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the programming and ideas coming within that? Because that's much more experiential and, you know, yeah. really interesting. I think, um, you know, the idea of programming and like live engagement was, was something Naima and I spent a lot of time talking about. Like we are not performance curators. Like I think we share a kind of, like we're very object oriented and we're very into talking but I think that like that performance like capital P performance was not sort of where where we come out of and I think it you know New Orleans is a live city like it's definitely mm -hmm. performances and everything little p big p like so it felt like okay how do you think about that and pay respects to that and so I think one of the things we did was work with a lot of artists who have music in their practice or work with musicians so Deneo, Seishi, Bopape just did a performance that was actually like private, like friend, like it was just kind of like not a public thing, but for like all the artists on the ground and for like friends and family at the New Orleans African-American Museum and invited the head of the Congo Square Preservation Society, Baba Luther, to come lead this like percussive drum circle while we like screened her, her video at the grounds of the New Orleans African-American Museum. And so that was like a, I think, very emblematic of the way that music has entered into the to the space of the triennial, which is through artists, very much tied to their work and very much thinking about, I think ultimately like it's the collectivity that happens around performance that has been mm -hmm. the lesson for us. Like that's, that's what it means here is like to be together. And I think that's what we've been thinking about. And so, you know, we invited um, four external partners uh, Jason, who I mentioned, Mari Robles, who's here now working on an audio guide and a former colleague of Maria Elena's and mine. Um, Christina K. Robinson, who's here, and Grace Devaney, who's working on this show. So each of them, I think rather than do the kind of thing where it's just artist talks, like artists talking about their work, it was inviting like other intellects, other ways of thinking, other disciplines to like reflect on the project and expand it and challenge it in some cases and like pick up different threads. And I think neighborhood story projects, you know, they, you know, I mean, Bruce is a musician, like it's, it's Bruce, Sumpai Barnes and Rachel Brenlin. And we're actually, I'm going to go install with them in like an hour, but you know, their, their project is collaborative. So I think the spirit of their entire mm -hmm. endeavor, I think was really uh, influenced our thinking, like, right. Like our job is we're just facilitators. We're mediators. We bring people together idea and and I think that's in their practice very much and their project is about kind of women in the healing arts this kind of idea of like female-led spirituality thinking historically through to the present and um you know and it has major live components oral histories music right because all of that like spiritual practice is defined by all of that like little p performance right like the exchange of ideas and speaking and coming together and ritual and performance. So I think that's been just like a thread that's like undergirded the exhibition without, I think, um, you know, with trying to think about performance differently than we might in a like art world sensibility, like how right. is it life, right? Which I think is super, just really important. And I think after the pandemic, I think all of those things like that has like been such a lesson of New Orleans is about being together and like how important that is. So. I think all the more so it's felt like really incredible to like actually gather and share experience. 
it feels more personal more intimate and that's very rich that's it it feels very much like new kinds of communities being created through this through this um kind of curatorial lens on of the possibilities you know and then new things happening that you wouldn't necessarily expect must be very beautiful to be there i wish i could yeah yeah i mean it's it's really strange because a normal biennial like you know, everyone gets together so often, groups of artists come in and we were like doing that in 2019. And then obviously 2020, like uh, I came to New Orleans like once after the pandemic to work on a fundraiser, but that was like it. And so that first project that Deneo did, like I looked around this, this, you know, patio and like none of the artists had like met, they like literally walked in, picked up a drum and like sat down. But I was like, oh my God, like 10 of you are here. You don't know each other. Like, this is incredible. You're literally like making music. Like it was so moving to like have that moment of community with these people that, that like in our minds, we've like imagined like you are talking to you and this object and this. And, and it was just like really incredible to see like people in real life and like, it's happening in the galleries. Like I really do see like people kind of knitting together like really across geographies and and particularly across generations I think but to see people in real life like in these little weekend things has been like so incredible I mean I think January will just be like a totally I'm I'm looking forward to it because I think a lot of people have just been waiting you know Mm -hmm. But I've never been to New Orleans, so maybe I'll come in January. You should. That's yeah. a great excuse. What do you, you say, girls? A, yeah, it's fun, and you get a you just get a map to the city that is just like a different map, and you get to go in places mm-hmm. that you wouldn't normally know exist. And like, you know, the first time I went to New Orleans actually was with Marielena and our uh, colleague Renee, and it was just like we were kind of like I, I just have this like sensation of like running around the whole city, and now I've been here like so many times and I know everywhere we were but at the time like I it was just like these little like you just learn something and then leave and go and come back and I don't know it's it's a really nice way to see the city so for the listeners that don't know Diane and I work together at the Paris Museum in Miami along with Rene Morales and Marie Robles at the moment that the museum was actively like looking at the Caribbean in a very specific way in a very expansive way like not just you know, we have a big Cuban American collection, but was beyond that. So we were doing a lot of research to, you know, the, yeah, like um, uh, different parts, Bahamas, Martinique, Diana spent a lot of time in, in Jamaica. Uh, so it's just also really nice to just see how that work that we were doing is now echoing throughout um, um, different parts of the world and manifesting in a different way in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm it's, super it's, indebted to that. Like, I'm super indebted to your work and Renee's work and everything that we did in Miami. Like, I mean, I kind of was joking with Naima, but it's like we've been preparing our whole lives for this moment. Like, mm-hmm. like a biennial is such a culmination of like, you know, 15 years worth of studio visits. You like go back and you're like, okay, who did I meet like in West Texas that I thought was amazing <laughs> or whatever the thing. But like, <laughs> I really feel like you know, being here like very privileged to have had the experience of working in the Caribbean and being able to bring some of that to bear here, I think has been like a super important, um, you know, structure for the triennial. So when should we go then? January? January. January. Yeah. yeah, January. Last, the the exhibition closes January 23rd and the week and weekend preceding that uh, will be all the performances. So we kicked off with like this incredible performance by Josh Kuhn, who's actually like a, you know, he's not an artist, just like neighborhood story projects, I think we tried to get people who work in other disciplines. And Josh is a professor who 
works essentially on like pop culture and music history and thinks a lot about like cross-border uh, translations and transmutations of culture. And um, he did this incredible project where he, you know, in 1884, this Mexican brass band came to New Orleans for the World's Fair and stayed and uh, like, according to newspaper articles, like charmed the whole city. And he went back and, and took the sheet music from that and had this local, like very important jazz musician put together a band and they um, like reconfigured the music and did this incredible set at the opening and this incredible mariachi band like kicked off the whole, like prospect was like called to order. Yeah, I saw that. I saw some on social like, media. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. Like it was really like uh, incredible. And I'm super excited in January for us to be in like a bigger space and to have like so many people come to see that. Cause it was just like, it's super incredible to see like, you know, it's, I think it was a Cuban American Mexican mariachi band. Oh, so wow. it was like, Only in the US. Of, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, in New Orleans, you're just like, right. This is like, we are at the epicenter of the world in some ways, right? Like, all culture intersects here. So it's been really incredible to see that. And so, yeah, in January, all of that will happen. Jamal Cyrus is doing a performance, Eric Paul Reich, like there will just be a full roster of kind of like moments to be together and yeah, see the triennial and eat good food and do the thing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the part that I'm always down and grateful in New Orleans. And, you know, um, it got me thinking that, you know, New Orleans was also at one point um was the spanish territory so like i also like the whole mariachi type of you know because you might not think about latinos when you think about new Orleans today yeah but at one point it was it was spanish yeah you know? so yeah also, yeah french spanish french i mean it's it's been everything and i think you know it has a super important native american history like it it really mm -hmm. i think it you know it different people market new orleans differently <laughs> But I think it's it's you know it's good to remember there's like layers on layers and and particularly after Katrina, um, you know a huge influx of of uh, Central Americans and Mexicans and uh, mm -hmm. South Americans came to New Orleans and so it's totally like re you know now we're um, 16 years out from that moment so it's like you know now the demographics are really different and the influences and where you can go and what you can see kind of um, in the landscape ha has changed because of that. So it's like also like New Orleans continues to like, I think grow and shift and change. And, and there is like space for a lot of that here. So it's, it's interesting to kind of trace some of those more contemporary changes as well. So if you want to know about the, the impact of Caribbean culture, when I went to prospect Four, I went from Miami and the gentleman who came with me um, is, he's an American citizen, he's a Haitian American. And we went to a food hall and they had um, a little Haitian restaurant in there. So he went and he assumed that he would be speaking to someone who spoke Haitian Creole. They spoke none at all. So yeah. he ordered in English. And when he sat down, he was really quiet. And I said, well, what does it taste like? And he was like, this is the best Haitian food that I've had outside of Haiti. Wow. These were not, you know, so that's how, but that's how strong Caribbean culture is that even these recipes that, you know, he felt like even people here in Miami couldn't get right, you know, was done perfectly. So that's yeah. how strong Caribbean influence is. 
Yeah. Diana, thank you so much. I know that you, you have to get ready to go. Thank you for spending time with us. Yeah, I thank you guys. I'll be there in January. Yes. Try. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we're taking a group from the museum in January. Great. So. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait to yeah. see no, you guys thank you, in Diana. real life. Yes. Yes. We'll thank be you. Thank again you. Soon. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Thanks Diana. It's a real pleasure. Culture diversity of Cuban art commands collectors' attention. Did you guys read that? But that was, I read it, uh, it was about the Cuban market, how, you know, it's like a, a great place to collect, kind of, right? Pretty much. Thought. Yeah. So, as someone who watches that space, um, has there always been like a, a strong market for, A, for Cuban art, it has there always been a strong market for finding work by artists of different cultures within that market or is that um, something new? no i think i think cuba and haiti have always held a space in the caribbean for a very long time like longer yes. than any any other spaces you know and i don't know if it's due to migration of peoples from those countries but it's always had a collector's market yeah. Um, we had a collector here in Jamaica, um, Wallace Campbell, and he he collected Cuban and Haitian work as well as Jamaican work. And that's how I got to see, you know, Cuban, really fabulous Cuban work until I went to Cuba, like, you know, a few years ago. Um, so I think um, the cultural diversity within the Cuban art is just so emblematic of each island. I mean, we all have our racial mixes for the same historical reasons. Um, and it just varies from space to space. And ideologically, how those spaces have um, each developed over the last, I don't know, 50, 100 years in terms of political systems and economies and, and uh, political ideologies and stuff. So I don't think the cultural diversity within Cuban art um, really matters much to the people engaging with the market if they understand Cuban heritage and the history, you know? Um, you have like, uh, in this article, they spoke about really established collectible, the Wilfredo Lambs and the like, Porto, Quero, Porto Carrero, um, Roberto Fabello, people like that. But you also have Belkis Aon, who wasn't mentioned. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, she's, I mean, I wouldn't say, she, I mean, she's contemporary, but as you both know, she passed away in her 30s but her work is now really on this trajectory and she's had a huge traveling retrospective, which I didn't see, but I was willing to travel to go and see. Did you see it, Maria? No, but we, we actually have a two book in our collection. Right. Um, I mean, and and David Godfrey. Castillo here in Miami, he deals her work as well. Right. So, I'm very um, so I think it's always been that way for Cuba. Um, and I think it will continue. I just think, you know, other islands may come into that same um, status, I suppose, in the international space. Um, yeah, you know, I think historically there's also, you know, like Havana was like this big, cute, like modernist city and center, not only for the Caribbean, but also for the U.S. and Europe. You know, like if, if, if people have been to Havana, you see a city that you know, you wonder that it was the way it was in the 20s and 30s, 40s. So it was this really amazing center of 
Like I remember one time that I was there that I went to a house that had an infinity pool. The 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 house was probably built in the 1920s or 30s. And, and you know, so this is like things that are in Miami now, like you know, 10 years ago, kind of coming in. They were happening there a hundred years before. So, and there was a lot of movement between, you know, like with Roland, for example, he went to Europe, went to Picasso, you know, studied with Picasso, and then when they had tools to escape because of the Nazis, they all, and some of them went to Havana, others, it's different islands, others to Mexico. So it's always been this pathway. And, you know, like Susie was saying with Haiti, Haiti also had this big, um, mm-hmm. it was one of the richest colonies at one point. So those two, Port-au-Prince, um, Havana, have always been driving a lot of the Caribbean discourse. And I think in a more broader sense, it's just a resource for Caribbean artists. And Cuba has always, you know, last week we were talking about the Havana Biennial, how it was a center of inspiration for a lot of artists in the Caribbean. I think the same can be, can be the market, the Cuban art market can be also seen or assessed in those ways um, as a, as a, you know, uh, the, the same way that the African-American market has started to the African or the African diaspora artists, you know, if you have a, a market that is strong and flourishing, hopefully it helps other other sub-markets on there or mm-hmm. parallel markets under that umbrella. And I mean, people like Fido Lam, who is probably one of the most known of the kind of Cuban masters, he always incorporated African, Chinese, you know, motifs on the work. So, so that like, like, you know, Susie was uh, kind of mentioning about the heritage of the place. Some of these artists from the beginning were, were showing who they were mm-hmm. in their work. Now, I do think that this idea about, like what I'm trying to say, there's, there's always been African motifs in the work and there's been artists that have been mixed or mulatto or different you know in the case of lamb he's chinese and black and so on but i do think that uh more and more there's more presence of of the black cuban artists the afro cubans and the afro-caribbean as well which which for better or worse um at times they were not the majority and that's very specific i think you know, Puerto Rico, that's even more common where you have more white Puerto Rican artists than black Puerto Rican artists that are more known. So I do think that, that and I'm hopeful that more and more we get, you know, like Belki said, it's a great example. You know, she's now, like you said, to getting more attention and getting more attention mm-hmm. and she's a black Cuban. So, so it's, it's all good. There's a, there's a new exhibition. It's um, what it closes in January. Um, at the Z33 House for Contemporary Art, Design and Architecture in Belgium. I didn't mention this in the news, um, but I've done a little more research on it. It's difficult to access. There's not much online presence, but it's a really important exhibition. It's called In the Eye of the Storm. Um, The artists included are from Puerto Rico, Haiti, Barbados, Grenada, Guadalupe, and Martinique, which I think is interesting because it's purely Caribbean. And it's multimedia with film, photographs, paintings, sculptures, and installations. And it's all about the impact of literal and figurative storms. So it's about the climate crisis, but it's also about um, flux, identities in flux, um, gender identities in flux as well. And the artists included, we have, I think one of the most exciting artists in the region is Ada M. Patterson. Alvaro Barrington, Beatrice Santiago Munoz, Manuel Mitho, and a handful of others. 
um, that are really, I think, really interesting emerging artists from the region and the diaspora. So I would um, urge people to go and check that out um, online and see some of the work. Um, hopefully they'll do a virtual tour. But I think in the context of COP21, it's really important that the, the conversation and the artistic production around climate crisis and crisis generally um, in context of the pandemic. And I don't know, the, the 2021 just feels so, the last two years have felt so, so different. Um, I just think it's really interesting work to see articulated in these various ways, very moving. I've seen some, some of Ada's work and uh, it's moving. So I would, I would urge people to check it out. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar with Ada Patterson, Ada is from Barbados, um, really yeah. fantastic writer as well, has written for Sugarcane several mm -hmm. times, and Ada's work has been on our cover. I don't remember. Right. That's how I first, that's how I first discovered Ada's work. Oh, that right. image. I was like, my, oh my God, who is this? You know, being on an island is really limiting in terms of your access. So that's why that's how social media has changed it for me um, in terms of my knowledge about, right. So that's the image that got me looking at Ada. See, I love it. Yeah. And you can actually still purchase that. I'll make that link available somewhere for you so that you can actually sure. purchase that issue if you would still like it. That was our Barbados issue. It was our first destination issue. We would like to do that again, but... Sheena, Sheena edited it. Was she guest editor? Yes, she was. Right. So she did a fantastic job pulling together such exciting folks in fashion and film and theater. Um, it, was, it was really fantastic, so... Um, with that, we're going to close out. Ladies, do you have anything coming up? We have something special coming up. We will let you know in our next episode what we have coming up for December 1st. It's super exciting. But in the meantime, ladies, do you have any talks or anything going on that we need to know about the next few weeks? Um, well, I have, uh, Susie Wong Presents on Arts. Yeah, I have, um, I'm closing, I did an online exhibition called Inside Out. Uh, the Jamaican Intuitives, which was a secondary market kind of survey um, of the self-taught artists of Jamaica. Um, that's closing this week and I'm opening um, an emerging contemporary show. Again, purely online because just because Susie Wong has to be outward facing. And um, so I would I would suggest people, you know, follow me on Instagram at Susie Wong Presents. And you'll see you'll see announcements there and, and content around those two projects. Maria, do you have anything coming up? Um, you know, now that I can think, I always feel like I'm missing something. But if you're in Miami, go to Pam and have a show up, I with Power, which is gonna be up through our Basel. So if you're coming to our Basel, you can also see it as African and African diaspora art from the Jorge Harrison collection. So okay. that's always something to check out. Yes. All right, ladies, um, Maria, where can we find you online? You can find me on Instagram. My handle is Contemporary Chica. Susie, where can we find you? Um, my handle is a, um, at Susie Wong Presents and on, on Artsy. Just just look, search Susie Wong Presents. And you can always find me at Sugarcane Magazine. Sugarcane Mag, if you're visiting the website, all that good stuff. Be sure to look out for This Week in Black Art and This Week in African Art that's coming up over on the weekend. And ladies, that's it. 
Thank you so much for your time. If you are going to PS5, let us know. Send us a DM. Maybe we can do like a meetup of some sort in January. I think that'll be cool. We're going to convince Susie to come with us and go have some oyster poor boys. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. The <laughs> yeah, man, I'll be there. So it'll be really dope. Thank you everyone for your time. Be safe and we will talk to you next week.